Whether you have your own bathroom or you share one with your family, a little extra help keeping the bathroom sink, counter, and mirror clean goes a long way. And Viva paper towels are for the long haul. They're two times more durable when wet compared to the leading value brand. And they clean like cloth, helping you keep the surfaces in your bathroom dry and fingerprint and toothpaste free. For an exceptional bathroom clean, there's Viva Paper Towels. Visit vivatowels.com to learn more. And you're on right now with Jim Dawes on the Mojo 5.0 Radio Network. Your daily journal of news, politics, and culture from an America First perspective. If you want to listen to this show on demand, you can find us on Spreaker, iTunes, TuneIn, and Spotify. And you can follow us on Twitter at right now, Jim Dawes. Send me an email at rightnowjimdolls at gmail.com or leave me a voicemail that we can use on the air at 772-245-0750. That's 772-245-0750. And welcome to the broadcast. We've got a busy lineup today. In the first half hour, we're going to talk about the absolute meltdown of the Democrats and their mouthpieces in the mainstream media over Bill Barr um, making the sort of obvious comment to anybody who's been paying attention over the last two and a half years that there was indeed spying by the Obama administration on the Trump campaign. It was extensive. It was obvious. It's been thoroughly reported. But the uh, the Democrats and the uh, the mainstream media have spent the last two and a half years uh, trying to drum up this Russia collusion hoax in order to deflect from the reality of the Obama administration's abuse of the intelligence and law enforcement apparatus of the federal government in order to uh, engage in political spying. And now that uh, the, uh, the, the special counsel Mueller report has come up a cropper, there was no collusion, there was no obstruction. Finally, we're getting to turn our attention uh, to the real issue, and that is the spying that went on, and they're absolutely freaking out about it. It was uh, the reason that they uh, that they turned to haranguing uh, Bill Barr about you know hurrying up and releasing his report, and he was dragging his feet and obstructing obstructing for the Trump administration was to continue to keep the administration on the defensive. And uh, Bill Barr showed up at a appropriations committee hearing yesterday to talk about the budget he needs for the Department of Justice. And, of course, they started haranguing him about when he was going to turn over the report and uh, was he going to violate the law and, you know, return it over, uh, turn it over unredacted, you know, basically just haranguing him. And uh, he happened to let slip the fact that he is going to look into the circumstances surrounding the Obama administration spying during the 2016 campaign, and that just freaked the committee out. Uh, Nancy Pelosi and little Chuck Schumer 
promptly ran to the microphones and uh, and declared that Bill Barr has to apologize and walk it back. That's what uh, Chucky Schumer said. He's got to take that back. You take that back and apologize. Say you're sorry for saying that. Really? Really? You want him to apologize for stating the obvious? Bill Barr would be derelict in his duties if he did not follow up on the spying that went on. Pelosi, for her part, you know, she she accused Bill Barr of going off the rails. Yeah, you're going off the rails if you look at truth in Washington, D.C. And uh, Nancy Pelosi is most certainly on the rails. She's on the rails with her Democrat House caucus to taking this country right down the road to socialism and Marxism. So the, the we know anybody that's paid attention, and, and Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi and the mainstream media know this as well. They're just pursuing their propaganda that there was extensive spying on the Trump campaign during the 2016 election and after the election prior to Trump taking office as well. They were uh, conducting FISA warrants on no fewer than four Trump campaign officials, that being uh, um, Carter Carter Page, uh, Paul Manafort, um, Papadopoulos, and, uh, oh, I'll think of the name in a second, but he he was uh, one of the uh, senior campaign officials, the old fellow with uh, the funky mustache. But um, not only that, I mean, that was obvious, but uh, the FBI and or the CIA were operating or sending operatives at the Trump campaign to um, to dangle information in front of them, then come back and harvest that information in order to justify opening a so-called counterintelligence investigation. They were doing it very strategically. They were luring Trump campaign um, volunteers uh, over to Europe and the UK in order to circumvent uh, the rules against domestic spying here in the United States. They were teaming up with MI6 and MI5 over in the UK to try to set up Papadopoulos and Carter Page. They used CIA operatives, Joseph Smith sued, and Mark or, and Stephen Halper to uh, to uh, infiltrate the campaign and try to entrap them here in the states. They used Hank Greenberg to try to lure Michael Caputo and Roger Stone into uh, paying for Russian um, sourced so-called dirt on Hillary Clinton. Hank Greenberg is a longtime FBI and CIA informant. And I believe uh, before this is all over, it's going to come back, uh, come out that this effort went all the way back to December of 2015 when um, uh, when Trump's personal attorney, Michael Cohen, uh, was uh, was attempted to be lured by Felix Sater into trying to engage in conversations with Vladimir Putin in order to build a Trump Tower in Moscow. All of this has come out. Anybody 
with eyes to see uh, knows that this happened and that uh, so-called reporters in the mainstream media are more ignorant than people who have bothered to even pick up uh, a book, Dan Bongino's Spygate, or um, or many other books that have been written, including uh, Stephen F. Cohen's uh, book on the new Cold War. They know what went on. And for these reporters in the MSN to just pretend that none of this happened is just absolutely amazing. So first I'm going to play you a clip of Bill Barr in, in his rather innocuous statements uh, acknowledging the obvious that spying did occur and that he's got to get to the bottom of it. He has a duty, an obligation as the attorney general to determine whether any of that was legitimately justified by probable cause. Spying on a political campaign is a big deal. So you're not you're not suggesting, though, that spying occurred. I think there was a spying did occur. Yes, I think spying did occur. Well, let me. But the uh, question is whether it was predicated, adequately predicated. And I'm not suggesting it wasn't adequately predicated, but I'd need to explore that. I think it's my obligation. Congress is usually very concerned about intelligence agencies and law enforcement agencies staying in their proper lane. And I want to make sure that happens. So, I mean, it's just as obvious. It's been thoroughly debunked uh, the, that spying did not occur. The spying was extensive. It consisted of unmasking. It consisted of efforts in entrapment. It consists, consisted of wiretaps. And the American people really need to educate themselves on this so-called two-hop rule. They think, well, they were just, uh, you know, uh, monitoring the phone calls of Carter Page and Paul Manafort and others. That, you know, they they weren't even with the campaign at the time. Well, what the two-hop rule allows them to do is not only to uh, monitor uh, the target's phone calls, but also everyone that the target uh, speaks with. So once Carter Page picked up the phone and spoke with, oh, um, Kellyanne Conway or Rents Priebus or anybody else in the campaign, that allowed the NSA to start monitoring their calls as well. The MSM, the mainstream media, the mouthpieces for the Democrats absolutely freaked out, freaked the hell out over this uh, this obvious observation by Bill Barr that spying occurred during the 2016 campaign. I spy an attorney general giving credence to conspiracy theories. It feels like we, that basically the attorney general gaslit the country. Bill Barr, one of our nation's most respected lawyers, a two-time attorney general, turned in his tortoiseshell glasses for a tinfoil hat. Barr has made really clear, I'm going to be an engine for the president of the United States. I am not the attorney general for the country. The attorney general of the United States in a dog whistle to Sean Hannity is a big deal. He is a flunky. For Donald Trump, he's not an independent thinker. He sounds good. He seems sincere. But if you look at what he does, not what he says, then you see the actions of a hatchet man here, and it's really disturbing. You know what the beauty of all of this is? Because of their over-the-top reaction to the very obvious observation that spying did occur in the 2016 presidential campaign, because of their overreaction and their absolute freakout over this, 
they're drawing attention to it. Long ago, uh, the American people stopped trusting the mainstream media. It's been obvious for quite some time, decades really, that they're simply mouthpieces for the Democrat Party. They'll, uh, they'll lie to the public. They'll misrepresent their propaganda outlets. And the more attention that they draw, draw to the obvious observation by Bill Barr that they were spying in the 2016 campaign and he as attorney general has an obligation to get to the bottom of it, the more uh, that people become aware of the wrongdoing of the Obama administration. I want to pay you a little bit more of the, uh, the meltdown responding to Barr's observation. What we've seen and heard from the president in the past five days may be the biggest lie of all. Repeatedly. Oh, I got to I got to correct myself. Uh, this is back um, during the, the very early days of the administration. I think it was just about three weeks in when Trump made the observation that, in fact, he, uh, the Obama administration had been spying on his campaign. And uh, and see if you can tell the parallels between the uh, the level of intensity and the level of dishonesty that they engaged in back then saying Trump was lying to the to the clip I played you previously where they were now saying that Bill Barr is lying. What we've seen and heard from the president in the past five days may be the biggest lie of all. Repeatedly, and with no facts to back him up, making the outrageous claim that the so-called deep state spied on his campaign. This phony baloney story about a spy on the campaign. To call them a conspiracy theory is to give them too much credit. The notion that somehow the FBI implanted, planted uh, someone inside the campaign to spy on the campaign is just not true. This unproven narrative of a spy being placed inside his campaign. Did the intelligence community spy on on President Trump and his campaign? Uh, No, we did not. Each and every one of those allegations, and that was James Clapper there right at the end, but each and every one of those allegations from the MSN were ultimately debunked. It took a lot of digging by the House Intelligence Committee and its chairman, Devin Nunes and and Jim Jordan, uh, to uncover the spying but in the end it was uh, every one of those statements that you heard was was proven false and the president was vindicated and it was an extensive effort it wasn't just a fisa warrant against carter page it was an extensive effort they used the two-hop rule there's no telling how many thousands of people's uh, phone calls were monitored under this it had this unmasking campaign where the uh, mainstream Um, I mean, uh, the NSA collected all of the uh, phone calls and then unmasked any phone calls that were um, made by Trump campaign officials. And then those calls and those transcripts were spread throughout the intelligence agencies of the federal government. And it involved at least four, I think probably more before it's all over with, FBI, CIA operatives, uh, infiltrating the Trump campaign in order to try to entrap people with uh, promises of dirt. There was Carter, I mean, there was um, Joseph Mifsud that, that uh, planted information with um, George Papadopoulos. There was Stephen Halpern that then harvested that information in order to try to give justification for launching a um, counterintelligence and then ultimately a criminal investigation. There was Hank Greenberg who tried to entrap Michael Caputo and Roger Stone 
by dangling, uh, offering to sell Russian dirt on Hillary Clinton for $2 million. There was um, Felix Sater who dangled uh, the prospect of a Trump Tower in Moscow. If only Michael Cohen could get Trump to engage in direct communications with Vladimir Putin. And there there are going to be more uh, that come out before it's all over with. We've just scratched the surface because the deep state has been covering up ever since. I got a clip for you here. This is uh, Jim Clapper, who has, uh, has been caught committing perjury, lying to Congress about the, MSA, uh, the NSA's spying program. He's going on with Wolf Blitzer and reacting to Bill Barr's uh, statement that there was spying in the 2016 uh, presidential campaign. Attorney General said today that spying did occur in the president's campaign. I'm wondering what your reaction was. Well, I thought it was uh, both stunning and, and, and scary. Uh, I was. Uh, I bet you do think it's scary because you violated laws against this. And both stunning and, and, and scary. Uh, I was uh, amazed at that and, and rather disappointed that uh, the attorney general would say such a thing that, you know, the term spying uh, has all kinds of negative connotations. Oh, I don't like that term spying. Remember when he was on The View? He said, well, we don't like to use that word spying. Well, if you're recording people without their knowledge, if you're trying to lure them into a conspiracy uh, to violate the law, if you're unmasking their private conversations, that is spying. That is the definition of spying. He doesn't like to use the word. We weren't spying on them. We were just collecting information um, surreptitiously uh, the attorney general would say such a thing that you know the term spying uh has all kinds of negative connotations and uh i i i have to believe he he chose that term uh uh deliberately you're absolutely right he chose that term deliberately because that is what was going on and I think it's incredible that if he has concerns, he could easily have, on his first day on the job after his confirmation, asked his, his own IG, the Inspector General of the Department of Justice, for a briefing on his preliminary findings who, uh, in the course of his investigation, that is the IG's investigation, into whether there was any wrongdoing by, by the FBI. And I think it would have been far more appropriate for him to just defer to that investigation. Well, why do you think uh, he, what leads Clapper to believe that he didn't do that? I'll tell you what led him to believe that. It's what I've been telling you on this show ever since they started bringing the inspector general into all this. The inspector general at all of these uh, deep state um, bureaucracies in Washington, D.C. is not there to punish anybody for wrongdoing he is there to protect the reputation of these deep state bureaucracies by conducting sham investigations that at the very most will find a wrongdoing by some low-level bureaucrat and toss them to the wolves but he's there to protect the the reputation and the um uh the upper level management at these deep state bureaucracies. And that's exactly what this IG has done, Horowitz. They say, oh, well, you know, he 
he um, he tossed um, what it wasn't uh, McCabe. It was uh, uh, the other the other deep state mole um, tossed him to the wolves, and he was ultimately fired just before he uh, was able to retire. Uh, he he tossed him to the wolves. Yeah, they were they were going to let him go. He didn't face any criminal charges, or at least hasn't yet. And um, and that's what they do, and that's why Clapper wanted Barr to defer to the IG because he knows that the IG is going to protect Jim Comey and and uh, McCabe and Lisa Page. That's the internal, the inspector general's internal investigation is not, cannot be the end of this. You've got to have an outside um, person look at this, and it is almost certain that uh, violations of the law occurred. And people have to be held to account. You can't have a law enforcement agency that is lawless itself. Here's the last part of this clip from Clapper. Uh, rather than uh, postulating with apparently no evidence, he just has a, a feeling that uh, there was spying against the uh, campaign. Yeah, there was spying against the campaign. You don't have to have a feeling. We we know that. It's been well documented for some time. And the reaction from the MSM is, well, you don't have any evidence that it happened. Well, the evidence is the lack of evidence. We know the spying went on. We know the unmasking went on. We know the use of um, operatives went on. The question is whether they had any evidence of probable cause in order to engage in those activities. And they did not. That is a lack of evidence. So they're trying to uh, uh, flip the language on its head and say, well, he doesn't have any evidence that it happened, that there was uh, ill intent, that there was a lack of probable cause. You don't have to have evidence that there was lack of probable cause. You have to have evidence that there was probable cause, and there was none. I loved, I found a clip, an old clip, uh, where Michael Caputo came on with Wolf Blitzer, and Blitzer was trying to to discredit this term spying and saying, well, it wasn't spying, it was just surreptitious surveillance it was just undercover operatives it wasn't actually spying the president also said he thinks that in his words very interesting items will be coming out coming to the forefront over the next two weeks so what do you think he's talking about well again it can't get into the president's mind and teasing something that's coming out a week from now or two weeks from now is something that the president often does if you remember back to the muslim uh, ban that he put in place he promised that that a new ban would come in place within a week and it ended up being about a month later so he likes to just kind of tease things you know he's a showman and i think this is just part of his craft the chairman of the house intelligence committee the republican devin nunes uh, he says uh, it's possible the president could have been swept up in what they call some incident this is not the clip I was looking for. This is actually that uh, that idiot uh, Swalwell uh, attacking the president for making the obvious, obvious observation that there was uh, they spied on him in the campaign. Man, I got so many clips I could play for you here. In the short time we have remaining in this segment, I need to uh, tell you that in the the uh, second half hour, we're going to talk to um, Michael Bussler. 
He is a uh, economics professor, and he's going to talk about the illegitimate effort to try to get at the president's tax returns through the IRS and how that endangers all of our privacy by setting a terrible precedent. But before I let you go, I got to talk about the fact that on the same or, or the following day after Barr made his admission, the uh, Ecuadorian embassy allowed the uh, the uh, British law enforcement agencies to enter and arrest Julian Assange. That is relevant because the MI6 was involved probably with uh, our CIA and John Brennan in setting up these these uh, operations with Stephen Halper and Joseph Massoud and others in order to try to entrap the Trump campaign. Trump had said that he wanted to um, make NATO nations pay their fair share and the UK that had been riding on our coattails along with the other European countries for a long time um, were opposed to that. So they were trying to help Hillary Clinton get elected and defeat Donald Trump. And they helped set all of this up with Christopher Steele's bogus dossier. He's a former MI6 agent himself. But now they've arrested Julian Assange. And they're claiming that, uh, you know, he uh, he violated uh, classified information when, in fact, he's doing the same thing that the Washington Post and the New York Times does. We'll be back right after these messages on Right Now. As you make plans this season, consider convenient COVID-19 testing from Quest. Get the same test hospitals use without a doctor visit. Simply order online, select from drive through or at-home options, and get the results sent securely to your phone or computer. It's a great fit for your busy life. With over 20 million COVID-19 tests processed, you can count on Quest. So order your test today at questcovid19.com. That's questcovid19.com. As you make plans this season, consider convenient COVID-19 testing from Quest. Get the same test hospitals use without a doctor visit. Simply order online, select from drive through or at-home options, and get the results sent securely to your phone or computer. It's a great fit for your busy life. With over 20 million COVID-19 tests processed, you can count on Quest. So order your test today at questcovid19.com. That's questcovid19.com. It's been 25 years since apartheid ended and Nelson Mandela's African National Congress came to power in South Africa. The ANC has held on to power ever since and the nation has been racked by soaring crime, poverty and government corruption. Lately, there's been a rise of a party called the Economic Freedom Fighters, led by a radical Marxist named Julius Malema. The EFF has advocated confiscating white farmers' land and made a campaign theme of slaughtering the white minority. Not surprisingly, this has spawned an epidemic of brutal murders of white farmers, including women and children. Our guest is Ernst Rotz, author of Kill the Boar, Government Complicity in South Africa's Brutal Farm Murders, which you can find on Amazon. Rhodes is a constitutional lawyer and civil rights activist, and he joins us right now. Ernst Roots, thank you for this important book, and thank you for speaking out on this topic. 
Thank you very much. It's it's a pleasure to speak to you, and thank you for for giving me this opportunity to to talk to your listeners about about what's happening in South Africa. So, how many whites are left in South Africa, and how many have fled? Well, the the numbers are there's a bit of uncertainty regarding the numbers, but there has been studies which has found that about half a million have left the country uh, in 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 the last two decades or so. Um, the, the, in terms of uh, white people, the uh, white people remain a fairly small minority. So Africa has about 56 million people, of which about 80% are uh, black people, uh, black African. Um, uh, the white minorities constitute about uh, 3 to 4 million people in South Africa. It's, it's roughly about 8% of, of the population. And how many of that uh, 8% are the uh, legacy settlers, Afrikaners, uh, working, still working the land, do, yeah. you, do you figure? Yes. Yeah, so, so we use, use the term Afrikaners, although the word Bula is actually more prominently used in, internationally. Um, uh, in terms of the Afrikaners or the Bulas in South Africa, they are about, of which I am one, we, there, are, there are about 2.7 million of us uh, in South Africa. And um, interesting, the word Boer is, is derived from a word which actually means farmers because the, the, the ethnic community or the cultural community known as the Afrikaners or the Boers are so closely related or linked to, to the activity of farming that they've actually been named after the, the occupation to, to frame it as such. Um, and this is also particularly relevant when we're talking about the violence that we see on, on South Africa's farms and the targeting of minorities in South Africa by the government and by, by other more radical parties, such as the economic freedom fighters, whom you've mentioned in your introduction. You know, I remember back in the 80s uh, when the divestiture movement was going on and the pressure was on F.W. to clerk to uh, end apartheid and free Nelson Mandela. And uh, the concern of a lot of people was Nelson Mandela was, um, you know, a, a communist. And um, it was predicted that, uh, you know, at some point uh, communism would uh, would find a foothold in South Africa. I'm surprised that it's taken 25 years. But with the rise of um, this uh, Julius Malema, and I, I want to play a clip for the listeners just to give them a taste of what, um, what kind of politician, but he actually sits in the South African parliament. Uh, and this is yeah. just a short clip of Malima at one of his campaign rallies. Now, that is just absolutely chilling incitement to, to really genocide. And it's just amazing that the world has turned a blind eye to this, largely turned a blind eye to this. I was, I was telling Ernst in, uh, when we were talking before, the, the blackout of the mainstream media over here is almost complete. Just give us a, some broad outlines of the political situation over there and uh, the likelihood that Julius Malema uh, could be, be elected president of South Africa. Mm. 
So maybe just to start with a clip that you played in case the listeners couldn't couldn't hear properly. Um, it was a political rally, and he was chanting. It's not a. You could hear clearly. It's not really a song or a chant, a political chant. So he was chanting, uh, "Shoot to kill, kill a man." And then um, he was singing the song. He, he changed the words. There's a well-known song in South Africa called Kill the Boer, Kill the Farmer, which is often sung at, at political gatherings. And the song has been declared to be hate speech. And so what Malema has done is he, he sort of made a mockery of the whole thing. And now he keeps singing the song, uh, but he, he changed the words to kiss the Boer, kiss the farmer. But of course, we all know while, while he's doing this, he's making hand gestures and he's shooting people. And um, then towards the end, he was he was making a uh, he was making a sound um, going which is to imitate imitate the sound of a machine gun of you know shooting people. So Julius Malema was actually the pre- the youth president, the president of the youth league of the ruling party. He was expelled from the ruling party not for being racist, but for publicly criticizing the president. He then went on to establish his own political party, which is more radical and more aggressively uh, Marxist than, than the ANC, which is also a Marxist uh, movement. And he he currently enjoys about just probably about 10% support in South Africa. But the interesting thing about the dynamics in South African politics is that Julius Malema is, uh, and his party is sort of the tag, the tail wagging the dog in the sense that they are a fairly small party by comparison to the leading party, but they are the ones calling the shots. They are the ones they, for example, are the ones who, who tabled this motion that private property has to be confiscated by the state without compensation. And then the ruling party supported him in doing this. So I think it's not unfeasible or unrealistic to expect that in the future there might be some negotiation process where Julius Malema will probably demand uh, for, for the two parties to, to, to join again, to meld together. And then he would probably demand something that he can have to be made deputy president or or some cabinet senior cabinet minister position or something like that. It's it's not an unrealistic um, expectation for something to happen in South Africa in the future. I watched a clip uh, from the deliberations in Parliament about uh, the land confiscation. They call it expropriation without compensation, and Malema yeah. was absolutely. Um, bullying the majority party into compliance with this demand and threatening them, um, alluding to, uh, you know, terrible things happening to them if they stood in the way of his, uh, his radical Marxist party. So tell us how bad this, uh, this problem is. How many, how many farmers have been murdered? Are they obviously political or is this just in, driven by racial incitement by uh, Julius Malema and his ilk? Well, um, the problem with the whole topic of farm murders or farmers being killed is that it's, a, it's quite a complicated phenomenon, so it's hard to generalize. Um, I can tell you without a doubt that some of these murders happen strictly due to political reasons, and I can say that for certain people, because some of the murderers have faked that. Um, after murdering a farmer, they would say in testimony that they did so because they were influenced, for example, by the song Kill the Boer, Kill the Farmer, or they are a member of some political movement, and that's why they killed this person. Of course, there are cases where it's, let's call it robbery gone wrong, where a person tries to rob, steal from a farm, and then something happens, and eventually someone gets killed. That also happens. Uh, but if we talk about the numbers, and my approach in writing the book was to stick to the, 
to, to the conservative numbers. In other words, not to give estimates of how many people have been killed, but to give the at least amount. So we, we have a list of the victims of these attacks. We, we keep track of the cases that we could verify. And the names on that list is, those are the names that we could verify. And then on that list, we have about 2,000 names of people who have been murdered during these attacks uh, in South Africa since the year 1990. Um, so it's about 2,000 people, and it's something that's not really spoken about uh, internationally. Well, I've seen some of the photographs of these um, uh, brutal crime scenes, and um, I can't remember the uh, criminologist term, but uh, these are murders of, um, of uh, vengeance and hatred. Uh, they're not simply mm-hmm. to to kill, but um, there's actually been torture taking place and uh, mutilation of the bodies, including women and even uh, little babies. Um, yeah. And it, it seems to be all part of, uh, you know, a general atmosphere that's being uh, whipped up in the population to uh, to resent and hate uh, the, uh, the Boers uh, because, uh, you know, they're working the land. But... Um, and, and Malima's uh, broad campaign theme is that uh, the Afrikaans stole um, that land from the blacks. But my understanding of history, and correct me if I'm wrong, is uh, South Africa was largely undeveloped when uh, when the Dutch arrived uh, in South Africa, and uh, most of the black population came there uh, because of uh, you know the economic development. Yes. Well, there's many ways to answer that question, and one is to to point to the fact that South Africa is, and that's not a, it's, it's an undeniable fact that South Africa is actually a fairly dry country, a large part of the country is desert uh, or semi-desert, and it's not possible to survive on more than 30% of South Africa's surface if you do not have the technology to dig a borehole. Um, so that's one way of looking at it, or, or dispelling this claim that that if you are white and you own land in South Africa, then by definition you you must have stolen that land. The other thing is just that history is much more complicated than that. It's true that there were injustices with regard to land that happened under the apartheid system where the the idea was to create different homelands for different peoples. And and in trying to achieve this, what the apartheid government did was to, to forcibly move people, to say, well, this area is going to be for the whites and this area is going to be for, let's say, the Zulu people or the Khoza people. And so if you lived in the wrong area, they forcibly moved people. And you could say that that was an injustice and that has to be corrected. But that happened in particular areas in South Africa, and it, ha- it, was, uh, it, it impacted on particular communities that be- who could be traced back today. You can see who are the people who were affected. Um, and that's why we say that, that we support the idea of restitution of land as opposed to redistribution. And the difference is restitution means we have to look at was there a community that was forcibly moved off their land, then they should either get the land back or they should be compensated if they haven't been compensated for that. Um, but redistribution is what the current, what the government is pushing for at the moment, and that's to say, it's basically to say if you are white and you own land, then by definition you are a criminal. And I've spoken with a representative of the Department of Land Reform about this, and I asked him some questions, and, and it sounds completely lunatic, but let me, let me explain to you briefly what he said to me. So, so they, they have this, this notion that if 80% of the land is not owned by black people, then it's a sign of injustice. And I then asked him, well, how, 
what do they do if they, for example, give a, a farm to a black person and that black person then chooses to sell the property that was given to him in intent of, of, of correcting this historic injustice? He then chooses to sell the farm and it's then bought by a white person. And the response by, by the, the, of the government official working for the Department of Land Reformers, if a black person sells a farm that was given to him to a white person, then the correction of the injustice has been reversed. In other words, we then have to take that farm again uh, and give it to, to a black person again. Um, and so it's completely lunatic, but there's another twist, and that is that the aim is not really to hand out title deeds uh, or to, to convert property into private property. The, it's, it's in true Marxist terminology, the, the notion or the sentiment is that the government is the people. So th- when they say that we need to give the land to the people, what they are a- actually saying is we need to take the land and we need to vest it in the government, and then the government will control the land and decide what has to be done with the land. And that's what we see currently, currently happening in South Africa, where the amount of land the South African government already controls more than a quarter of all land in South Africa, and the land that they are accumulating is just increasing. Uh, and the land that they are giving away uh, as title deeds is it happens very slowly in South Africa. Well, we've seen this movie before in Zimbabwe uh, where, um, uh, uh, remind me of the president's name, um, uh, Robert Mugabe. Mugabe, um, yeah. in order to hold on to power, uh, promised uh, the population that they mm. were going to take uh, the white farmer's land and redistribute it. Of course, it was redistributed to Mugabe's um, cronies uh, who had no exactly. knowledge or really intention of working the land and, and keeping it in production. And it prompted uh, widespread famines and, and economic collapse. Does the uh, South African government not understand that um, uh, that if they uh, go down that same path, they will have that same result? Well, the, the strange thing about these socialist movements is that there's always someone else to blame. I mean, you know, you probably heard this thing that you know, real socialism has never been tried. You have to keep doing this. But it failed in Russia, it failed in China, it failed in Vietnam, and then. Cambodia and in Cuba and in Zimbabwe and in North Korea, but we just need to try it one more time. Um, and there's always a scapegoat. There's always someone to blame. So, so the position of the South African government, or the ruling party at least, with regard to Zimbabwe, is that the reason why Zimbabwe has failed is because of America. And um, just last week, two weeks ago, the, the, the ruling party in South Africa sent a delegation to Venezuela, and they used the hashtag, hands off Venezuela. Um, to show, as they describe it, I'm using their words, to show solidarity with President Maduro against the imperialist forces. And then they came back, and uh, this senior delegation came, went back to South Africa and said what they saw there was what could happen to a country if the West intervenes. In other words, everything that Venezuela is simply because it's simply America's fault. And, and therefore, they, they, they seem to think that if they do the same thing as Zimbabwe, although they have the caveat, they, they, we, we are inspired by what happened in Zimbabwe, but we want to do it without violence. So they would say they would make claims like that, and then they seem to believe that that what what the only thing that went wrong was really the West intervening in some way, and we're going to do the same thing and 
apparently now the West isn't going to intervene and we're going to create, and, and this, it might sound crazy, but I'm, I'm actually quoting the South African president who said quite recently that he, he intends to create the Garden of Eden in South Africa. So that's typical Cold War socialist terminology, this creating the ultimate paradise uh, through socialist policy. That, that's where we are in South Africa at the moment. Well, I know uh, you're here tonight to um, explore the plight of um, the rise of Marxism and communism in South Africa. But I've got to say, I see some parallels in the United States with the rise of uh, these uh, wild-eyed mm-hmm. cultural Marxists in the Democrat Party. The Democrat Party seems to have gone whole hog uh, for socialism and just a very thinly veiled form of Marxism itself. Uh, to tell you the truth, I was uh, surprised that it took South Africa 25 years uh, to, uh, to start seizing white lands and, and for these, uh, these murders uh, to really, uh, these murders of um, the settlers and the farmers to really come to a head. Um, what, do you, what is your best guess of the, um, the, uh, the prospects uh, for, for South Africa as far as, uh, uh, you know, a peaceful and prosperous place to live for people of all races. Well, I think there's a few things to be said here. Firstly, uh, yes, we, we look to to the U.S. and we also see the U.S. as, you know, people use the term the leader of the free world. And we are quite concerned to see people in the U.S. also flirting with with these ideas that have, that have failed everywhere in the world where they have been tried. There's actually an, ex- an explanation as to why it took so many years for uh, the, the system to come crumbling down or to start crumbling. And that's because, uh, so during the apartheid system, there, there were a lot of sanctions on South Africa and and the market was very restricted. Then in 1994, the ANC came to power. They actually had what they described as a national, a national democratic revolution. This is, I'm quoting from their policy document. And what it means, it's a two-phase revolution. So phase one is for the movement to present themselves as being liberal and as being in favor of free markets and, and trade and so forth in order to get the popular vote and also in order to get international support. And then, according to them, phase two of this revolution is once they obtain power, they must be, use the mechanisms of the state to further the goals of the revolution. So what happened in South Africa after 1994 was that uh, and also the apartheid system in that there was actually a freeing up of the economy. Um, and despite the fact that the party in power was very much a socialist party, the economy was suddenly opened up and there was a lot of investment coming into South Africa. Uh, it's not as a result of good governance by, by the ANC. They just happened to be the party that presided over this system where the economy was freed up. And they actually thought it's because they were a good government. And Nelson Mandela was much more moderate than Thabo Mbeki, than his successor. And Thabo Mbeki was much more moderate than his successor, Jacob Zuma. Um, and, and so as, as time passed, this wave of international approval and this, the, the, the economic growth as a result of the freeing up of the economy subsided. And now our government, people are starting to see that the government is actually failing and the more people start to notice how they are failing, the more they need to find scapegoats and yeah, and blame everyone else for what's happening. So, so in that sense, and I think here's an important point just to get to your question as to what are the prospects. 
I don't think the prospects are very good. There are people you always find optimists who say, no, we just need to, to hold on and things that everything's going to kind of turn out great. But the problem in South Africa, and, and this is where the U.S. comes in, is the, the U.S., and I believe it was the Clinton administration back then, actually played a very significant role in in creating the system that we currently have in South Africa, in, in, in pushing for the ANC to become the government and in pushing for... Uh, a, a, a liberal constitution and all of this, and it was it was it was uh, hailed as the most liberal constitution in the world and as the best constitution in the world. But what actually happened was the system that we currently have in South Africa gave and still gives tremendous power to the state president. Um, so, so the system, I don't think the system is sustainable. We we have a ruling party that is a socialist movement, and and they are given an a tremendous amount of power by the Constitution. Now, if you have a peace-loving, uh, free market-loving president, that's good. But but the problem is we have a president who who thinks socialism is a good idea, and this president has has tremendous authority to appoint people all around him. Uh, so we have checks and balances, for example, in the in the system to ensure that government does its job properly. But the people who are who who are appointed. You know, uh, to preside over these checks and balances are appointed by the president. So the president has to appoint the people who have to, to ensure that he does his work. And now, of course, if you have a, a president that believes in government, centralizing power in the government and in socialism, they simply appoint their friends or people who are political, uh, part of the political elite. So, so I don't think the prospect is very good, and I would go as far as to say that that there's a moral duty on, on, on particularly the U.S., to at least speak out about what is happening in South Africa, given that, that the U.S. played a role in creating the system that we currently have in South Africa that, that simply isn't a sustainable system. Well, it seems that the politicians, and uh, even including this administration, are very uh, uh, at a loss uh, of, of what to do, if anything, about South Africa. Um, Obviously, you've got an electorate there that is uh, predisposed uh, toward these, you know, Marxist uh, enticements, and um, yeah. and uh, I know that uh, the, the, as I said, there's a, a media blackout here. It would seem when I went searching for articles on this that was very, uh, very slim of uh, the coverage in in the uh, the main uh, you know organs of news. Uh, I guess I would ask, mm. um, has there been any uh, response from the rest of the international community, uh, including you know uh, the European countries where the where the original South African settlers uh, came from? Yes, they actually, I don't think that much from from Europe itself, um, but there has been some countries from which we've had a good response. Actually, one of the best responses we've had was last year when President Trump tweeted about. The problem in South Africa, saying that he's concerned about what's happening in South Africa, and that he gave Secretary of State Mike Pompeo instruction to investigate the matter. We've had quite an interesting response from our country, such as Australia. So there's a lot of a lot of people who have left South Africa have actually immigrated to Australia, to the extent that there's quite a South African constituency in Australia. And as a result of this, we've had some government leaders and politicians actively speaking out. Um, about what's happening in South Africa. We had the Minister of Home Affairs, uh, Peter Dutton, in Australia, saying that um, they they need to fast-track 
the visa process for people who want to leave South Africa to come to, to Australia. And that has resulted in quite some reaction from the South African government. Um, and, and I think what's also happening in Australia, and that's why we are in the U.S. now, is ordinary Australian citizens started talking about what's happening in South Africa more and more, to, to the extent that there were actually protest rallies in Perth and Sydney and, and, and so forth and Melbourne, where people were, were protesting against what is happening in South Africa. And the result of that was that lawmakers took serious notice of, of, of the problem. And uh, we are hoping, uh, at least for people in the U.S., to take note of what's happening in South Africa and to talk about it more. Because the more people talk about it, the more uh, lawmakers and, and government officials and people like the President and, and, and the Secretary of State will take notice of, of the problem and will 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 be inclined to publicly talk about this and to put pressure on the South African government to actively do something against the problem. Well, I've known uh, many uh, South, Africaners, uh, South Africans that have come to the United States and uh, they are productive and uh, intelligent, uh, smart people, good businessmen. Um, and I can think of a lot of countries in the world that would benefit greatly from, uh, from the farmers' uh, skills, uh, including uh, South Africa itself, uh, who seems to not realize the valuable resource that they have. In the short time we've got left, I guess I would, uh, would want to ask, uh, you know, South Africa is uh, home to many uh, mining interests and, and other big industries. Uh, I guess one have, has the uh, Marxist government uh, there in South Africa made any uh, noises about uh, confiscation of these industries. And, uh, and what is the response to all of this unrest and economic, um, I don't want to call it collapse, but uh, economic uh, dysfunction? that's rising in South Africa been from the international business community? Mm. Well, uh, I think one thing to stress here is the role that China is playing in terms of moving into South Africa. Oh, man. Uh, with multi-billion dollar projects, and, and of course this is welcomed by, by the South African government, uh, sort of a, a response to people disinvesting in South Africa, and then the response is, oh yes, well, that's, it's okay if people take the investments and leave, because that just China will just move in and, and pick up the ball. So, so that plays a role. And, and also there are quite a few, you could call it state monopolies, um, where it's, we have companies being run by the government, and according to law, you are not allowed to compete with them. And one such company is, is the electricity supplier, uh, which is a, a government-run company, and it's completely failing to the extent that we now have what we call load shedding, that they aren't able to provide enough electricity for the country. So the other day, about a week or so ago, to give an example, we had load shedding and I, at my house, we Arched. had, on a Saturday, we are we running out of, of We are running out of time, and I don't want to um, jam you up against sure. the clock. I want to make sure everybody knows how to get your book. It's on Amazon. Yeah, it's sure. called Kill the Boar, South Africa's... Uh, complicity uh the government complicity in south africa's brutal farm murders you're also uh, the ceo of an organization called afroforum that you can find online at afroforum.co.za uh, and ernst Rose, i want to thank you so much for being here and for bringing attention to this issue thank you very much and thank you for giving me, me the opportunity this episode is sponsored by schwans.com what are you having for dinner tonight hmm good question 
Schwann's Home Delivery has a solution for you. Stock up your freezer with high-quality frozen foods like premium meats and sides, delicious ready-made meals, ice cream, and more. No subscriptions, no memberships, just a friendly yellow truck that's been delivering food for almost 70 years. Listeners of this show get a special deal. Get 20% off your first order with code YUM20. Check out schwanns.com backslash yum for details. Need an extra hand with dinner? Just ask your connected home device to fill your pasta pot, and Delta Faucet Voice IQ technology will fill it with the perfect amount of water. Visit deltafaucet.com slash voice IQ to discover more.